Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now here's your host, Richie Plush. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Autism Talk, a podcast brought to you by Learn Behavioral, a leading provider in ABA services across the country. I'm your host, Richie Plush, and I'm excited because this week I had an opportunity to sit down with Tina Patterson, who is a wealth of knowledge, uh, particularly around clinical programming and around parent education. Um, For those of you that don't know, Tina Patterson, the clinician with a mission, is a board-certified behavior analyst with 25 years of experience. She is currently a lead behavior analyst at Siskin Children's Institute and is working to improve practices with regards to behavior change, education, clinical, and community programs for individuals with various disabilities. Thank you, Tina, so much for joining us. It's great to have you on our, on our podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. So you are the clinician with a mission, and I got to ask, what drew you to ABA and set you on this mission? Right. So um, that's a funny story, how I came up with the name. I was thinking, you know, everybody had a tagline, you know, and uh, Facebook was popular, and I thought, well, I've been on Facebook as myself for a while, but how do I disseminate more information about applied behavior analysis and and maybe be memorable, you know? And so I started saying, you know, it's just like, you know, I have this mission, and I want to be out there, and, you know, not a lot of people know clinicians have these missions, and then I was like, voila, I'm going to call myself clinician with a mission. So um, I started in the field um, – 25 years ago, um, I have a son who has a disability, and um, I was being called every day from the school, and they didn't know what to do, and I didn't know how to help them, and um, and I ended up going back uh, to graduate school and getting my degree in applied behavior analysis and really kind of uh, focusing on, on helping my own child, and um, he had a mood disorder, and was uh, eloping out of the classroom and threatening people that he was going to tell his mama on them and that his mama was going to come and take care of them. And I was like, okay, we can't have this. You know, this little guy's right. got to learn how to be in school, right? So, um, so I discovered ABA because I was going to help my kid. And uh, I do find, though, that's a common story in our field, right? We usually have Absolutely. a personal connection, you know, a lot of clinicians and teachers and you know we'll have some sort of personal connection so that's that's my story that's my connection and I think that that resonates with so many families Uh, so many families so many clinicians that I know of and that I've talked to over the years you know they have a son or a daughter that has special needs or a niece or a nephew or a cousin or a neighbor it's just becoming more and more prevalent uh, in terms of it, you know, I think individuals are such a part of our society now, and there's certainly room to grow with that. But so many clinicians I talk to have a family connection or a friend connection. It's great to hear that you took that upon yourself and said, I'm going to advocate for my family. I'm going to advocate for my son, and I'm going to do all I can to help. Yeah, and I really think it probably helps me to be a better clinician in some levels because I've been on both sides of that proverbial meeting table and so as a parent how I advocated but then now as a practitioner I I do have a a special connection to families and 
and I'm able to articulate that in a way that's maybe um, friendly, you know, and, um, and aligning myself with uh, understanding where they're from, what they're saying, and even sometimes um, helping them with some language that's missing from what they're asking for, you know, and mm. doing it with some compassion, you know, and, and empathy. So, yeah. Which I think we could all use a lot of these days. That's that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So how yeah. how would you describe, um, if you could describe your expertise, you know, if you had one area of expertise, what would that be? Yeah, so actually uh, in the field of behavior analysis now, we actually do have some subspecialties that we're being asked to declare. And that when I look back on all of my work and that I've been doing the last couple of decades, um, I, was, I was trained in, in a lab at Vanderbilt University, um, and we did applied behavior analysis and experimental behavior analysis. And um, so I was both in, in uh, research, but also in the community, in schools and residential programs. And I was uh, uh, really fortunate enough to be trained in both mental health and um, developmental disabilities. So I would say my specialty would be dual diagnosis. Um, what we know from the, the research that's been done, um, the CDC and SAMHSA.gov, um, they are reporting that people with autism and other developmental disabilities have a 70% co-occurrence rate of another disability. Um, and so I, I find that my expertise really helps people expand their knowledge base of what's going on with their son or daughter um, or their family member to include other conditions so that we don't pigeonhole ourselves into an intervention that may be limiting, right? So we want to be able to include all intervention components to address um, all the, the issues that individuals are having. And so I think that is a, a great way to talk about um, this, you know, very, very specifically that children with autism also will have depression or anxiety and um, or ADHD. And these are different conditions. They're not uh, subcategories of autism. So it's very much like saying, you know, I might be a person who has diabetes and, um, you know, I'm nearsighted, right? And I wear glasses. So I have two co-occurring conditions. And so I just, sometimes I think we forget that, you know, in the educational and clinical communities that once you have one diagnosis, that may not be the end of the story. Right, right. And and just because you have that diagnosis doesn't mean that you are the same as every other person that has that diagnosis as well, right? It's got to right. be an individualized program. So can you give us a, an example of, of um, some of the ways that you've combined, you know, um, those multimodal service delivery models, right, like ABA plus some mental health therapy? Can you give us an example? Absolutely. So um, I love that you brought up individualization because it's so crucial to our programming. And I think that as um, politicians um, get involved and educational districts get involved, they they kind of really want to put terms, right, and and, and labels and put, um, you know, because there's funding involved and you have to have definitions and so you have to have categories. And so they want to have black and white categories for, you know, disabling conditions such as autism and um, and I think it's really important that we continue to educate our, our you know, policymakers and um, our funders that 
uh, every person presents differently. And so what they will need will be different. And so the funding will have to be flexible that way. And the policies will have to be flexible in that way. So how I've been able to combine um, the approach is uh, really doing a very thorough um, assessment. So I will do a, uh, a developmental assessment combined with a functional behavior assessment and um, really have, make it conversational with families and educators so that I get into a conversation where I'm listening. I'm listening for terms that they use and really trying to unpack those terms. Tell me what you mean by those terms, I'll say often, or um, describe what it looks like. And when they are more descriptive, they are not only telling me their story, but I'm hearing other words. And when I hear other words that, that describe different behaviors, those are clues for me to pull in other kind of assessments. So, for example, if I'm talking to a family and they say, so, you know, our little, our, our little guy has been diagnosed with autism and, you know, he just is having a lot of trouble um, sleeping. He, and he doesn't have um, a good sleep schedule. And so I'm like, okay, immediately I'm thinking I need to do a sleep chart. Right. I need to find out what kind of sleep issues this kiddo might be having because that's going to affect his learning um, and, and his brain growth and development. And um, and then they might go on to say, and, you know, he just seems to be kind of moody, you know, late in the day. Um, and I'll say, well, tell me what that that looks like. And they'll describe a situation and, and I'll and I'll start thinking, oh, well, maybe we need to do a mental health assessment. So I'll pull out the pediatric symptom checklist and just make it conversational. I, I try to avoid from saying things like, oh, we have a bunch of checklists you have to go through. <laughs> I'm going to send them right. to you. I take <laughs> right. I've got 20 hours of homework for you. I right. know. I take it as an opportunity so that I can actually make it conversational. So I'm going to build a relationship with the family, and then I'm actually going to pull out some really crucial pieces of information about what's going on with their child and, um, and, and listen, listen to, is there more than one type of issue being presented that I need to be aware of? Now, it's the unusual behavior analyst who can do that, right? There, it takes a lot of training, you know, and so I was trained by psychologists and psychiatrists at Vanderbilt. Um, and so this took many years to perfect, you know, uh, those listening skills and being able to be a a uh, versatile, right, versatile behavior analyst who says, oh, I don't just work with one population. I don't work with just one diagnosis. I work with behaviors. Tell me what you're right. seeing. How can I help you? So, yeah. And I love that. I lo you know, you kind of said a, a few things that really stood out to me, and one was making it conversational. But, it, you know, in doing that, it can really be comprehensive because you're not just getting the answer to the question. You're getting what's also you know, the underlying story or if you will, right. What, what families are saying, but not necessarily saying very clearly. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's so important, just that active listening for any of our families that are experiencing an assessment or any of our clinicians that are giving one. Um, and the other piece of that, that really stood out to me was you're able to build a relationship with a family, um, which is, oh man, so critical. Anytime huh. we're trying to support a family via telehealth via in-person, uh, via parent consultation, you know, mm -hmm. supporting uh, students in schools, teachers, wh whomever it is that we're supporting, 
you mm-hmm. don't have a solid relationship, it's going to be really hard to say, you know, here's what I would do. Mm-hmm. That, that's exactly right. In fact, I've even started now with all of my mentorships and, and, and supervisions that I provide to other clinicians, I spend a lot of time talking about relationship building and those soft skills, right? How to communicate with families, how to express empathy, how to slow down and listen, you know? Um, And so I do provide some scripts for clinicians that will help them get started in that thinking process, but Mm -hmm. it's also very much something you have to practice until it becomes natural, you know, like any other skill. Right. Yeah. We start, you start off with a script and then you adjust it to, to meet your Mm -hmm. personal style, your, you know, the situation. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you brought up mentorship. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, how you do that and what that looks like for the, for the Uh, uh, students that you're mentoring? Absolutely. Um, So, Basically, I, when I provide clinical supervision, that's going to be more to students, right? So graduate mm-hmm. students in the field. Um, I also supervise behavior techs and, and that sort of thing. But um, mentorship specifically, right now I've been concentrating in mentoring um, BCBAs and business owners who are opening a clinical practice. I had uh, observed a few years ago that uh, ABA clinics were opening up like crazy across the country, but they weren't staying open. Um, And in many cases, um, they didn't know how to put business practices in place. And so um, I have a checklist. I have a 50-point checklist. And um, when you uh, sign up for mentorship with me, we go through business practices and we go through clinical practices that are considered um, ethical. And um, then we go through the business practices that are regulatory, right? Like, what do you know about Department of Labor, right? What do you know about HIPAA? Uh, and then I just go through the whole list and just uh, we take one topic at a time and so and then we build on that. So that's kind of what I've been focusing on the last year. That's such a needed uh, such a needed part of our community right now. You know, there are so mm. many areas where people are trying to open clinics and they're supporting, you know, a, a small community or even a large community. And not a lot of behavior analysts went to business school or uh, have a degree in, in some of those things. And so it's great that they're that you're there to support them and mentor them and, and really, you know, fulfill your mission, but also help them fulfill theirs. Absolutely. So I want to go back to a little bit about ABA services. Um, you know, we we talked about it a little bit, but I'd like to, for some of our families a little bit, give them a little bit more information. Can you kind of break down what a, what a program, you talked about what a program might look like, but can you talk about the difference between maybe skill acquisition and a behavior reduction within an, an ABA program? Yeah. So I find that um, there is a little confusion sometimes with families when, Maybe they go to the doctor and, and they explain that they're having some um, behavior challenges or that their, their child isn't developing um, in a certain milestone area, like communication is a developmental milestone or social skills or um, motor skills and these kind of developmental areas. Um, and and they, uh, they get a referral, right, from their doctor to get uh, ABA services. Um, and they're not really sure what the, what's going to happen. Wait, what does that look like? What, what does that mean, ABA services? Is that a teaching program? What am I going to be doing? And um, so many times when they get the referral from the doctor, 
that is an indication, <clears throat> excuse me, that's an indication that the doctor has a medical concern. So that would be medical necessity is what we call that in the field um, of, of, of uh, insurance providing reimbursement from a doctor's recommendation. There must be an established medical necessity, right? So we're usually looking at something in the developmental domains of problem behaviors like maladaptive behaviors. Um, so children who are hurting themselves or hurting others or eloping, um, causing harm, you know, to themselves or others. Um, communication delays, um, trouble communicating, but either vocally um, or, or with the system. Um, also, we're, we're looking at these social skills, right, and these um, ability to maintain relationships and friendships, how to, how to get along with others, um, anger management, conflict resolution, um, bullying. Uh, we want to make sure that, that our children are protected and that they know how to protect themselves. So that means they have to have uh, behavior repertoires, right? They have to have behavior skills right. that allow them to be part of the groups. But they also have to have some sort of some communication skill, either picture skills or sign language skills or verbal skills that will help them say, hey, leave me alone or, hey, um, you, you hurt my feelings, uh, you know, or, hey, I need to I need to take a break right now or I need some help. Um, we can certainly work uh, with children to develop these skills. And so that's going to be the medical necessity component. And you're going to see a lot of um, FBA, so functional behavior assessments to identify a replacement behavior for uh, whatever problem behavior they're, they're actually um, experiencing and demonstrating. A skill acquisition kind of program really fits well within um, the school domain, and you'll see a lot of clinics who are doing a lot of skill acquisition um, training, and that is usually for uh, little children, right? So uh, six and under, so we call that early intervention, um, you know, or EIBI, early intensive behavior intervention. Um, but they will work on helping children develop those skills in every developmental domain. Uh, and and it, it can be quite intensive. It can be anywhere from 20 hours a week to 30 or 40 hours a week. Um, it depends on the complexity of all of those delays. So, um, if you have to have both types of programs, both a medical necessity FBA kind of program or a skill acquisition program, you're going to see a lot of hours that are required because the research has shown that the more hours children receive uh, when they're little, you know, it really helps um, the neurological development of their brain learn new skills and, um, and be able to have a, uh, a, a life where they can integrate as much as they want to. Uh, with the public and community. So there are definitely two types of, of programs that we work on. They can be combined or they can be separate, but we refer to those as skill acquisition um, and behavior reduction. Great, great. Thank you for that. I think, you know, I'm thinking about some of the families that, that are listening that are just getting a diagnosis or maybe they're just getting started. And the idea of a 20, 25, 30 hour a week program, it, I, it sounds a little overwhelming, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I, but I don't think of it that way because I you know I, I think we can break it down into different you know different targets, different times of day, different things we can work on. Can you give us a little bit of your insight uh, into like mm. what you would include in a program like that? And I know that we're we're uh, kind of giving general ideas, so um, mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. this isn't necessarily for one specific person, but just a general general idea. Yeah. 
Well, basically, the service delivery model is going to come in um, a few forms. So you have either home-based service delivery model, where a clinician will come to your home and um, teach your child and teach the family uh, different skills and strategies to use. And um, then you have a clinic-based model where you typically have a little more hours with those kind of programs, right? And, and then we have school-based models where we're, uh, technicians and clinicians are going into the public schools, private schools, and um, helping the child integrate into their um, least restrictive environment, right? So they're the classroom mm-hmm. of choice. And so um, what you're going to see typically is uh, if you have a lesser uh, hours that are being prescribed, so anything under 20, so you've got 10 hours a week or 6 hours a week or 12 hours a week, that is going to look something like, okay, let's work on um, two hours a day, right? Let's work on some play skills, um, imitation skills, some communication skills. And so we do some one-to-one teaching, so teacher-led teaching with the child, and some child-led teaching where we follow the child's interests. We call that naturalistic mm-hmm. teaching. Um, but then right. we're going to spend some time doing some parent training and coaching, right? We want to make sure that they can do what we're doing when we're not there. And so that would be a home-based program. A clinic-based program is going to be really, really um, intensive one-to-one uh, where a, a clinician is going to work with the child on, on language skills, on, um, on all kinds of uh, verbal skills, vocal skills, making sure that they can ask questions, they can label items, and, and they can have conversations. And then we're going to work on motor skills, and we're going to work on all kinds of cognitive skills. And social skills, and then an area we call adaptive behavior. How can you get dressed and brush your teeth and and toileting? So those are going to be very intensive programs, and then you'd want to make sure that the the program has room for teaching the family so that the child can maintain those skills that are taught in the clinic and then um, use them and generalize them to the home and the school. So that's the point, right? We don't, the point isn't keeping right. them in intensive intervention forever. The point is, can you maintain these skills and then generalize them uh, across the community um, and, and how is that working? So does, is that helpful? Did I paint a good picture there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I just think, you know, 30 hours, it's, it sounds like a lot, but when you break it down like that, it, it can be a variety of different tasks. Um, and, and I, you know, the thing I want to point out is that parent training is a component of just about all those different programs, if not all those mm-hmm. programs. Um, mm-hmm. It's a little bit different with a school setting, right? Maybe you're doing some some teacher training and some paraprofessional or, or whatever the classroom aides uh, training. But really the goal is, I, I like the way you said it, um, the goal is for our students and our clients to be successful when we're not there, not just when we are there, right? And so it, who do we need to train so that we can fade out support so they can be uh, part of their community, a part of their society, if that makes sense. That, that's exactly right. And so, yeah, if you, if you have a program, if, you, if your child is being um, recommended for a, uh, a clinic-based program where you're getting 30 hours a week, that's really six hours a day, so three hours in the morning, three hours in the afternoon. Um, but I also like to make sure that it's not just one-to-one and it's not just teacher-led. So it has to be naturalistic, and that naturalistic piece means – the child shows interest in different activities and um, people and um, meals, 
and that we follow the child's lead and model and imitate how to communicate and interact with other people. And so, yeah, it can sound rigid, but that child's going to have um, uh, those hours in the day anyway. <laughs> so uh, right. <laughs> how are they going to spend that time, right? You know, and so you fade the hours, you send the hours based on their success. And so families definitely need to monitor that. You don't want the child to be tired. You want them to be having fun. This should be a fun learning opportunity uh, in either the home or the clinic. So, yeah. So, yeah, thanks for asking about that because it can be kind of confusing at first. Right. No, that's really insightful. Thank you for expanding on that. Um, Tina, I know something about you that you have always, I think for you mentioned for a, quite a while, you've been an advocate for telehealth and you've been uh, really trying to educate a lot of families and a lot of clinicians on how they can use telehealth. Um, uh, are there things that we should be considering right now as we get into uh, more of a telehealth type model as that's available more and more across the country these days than ever? Absolutely. So I have been actively using telehealth since 2007. So for the past 13 years, um, in the early days of Skype, (laughs) I was doing telehealth (laughs) sessions and supervision, even when the broadband wasn't quite there. But it was simply because there was such a need in rural counties and in countries, other countries that didn't have access to a clinician. So um, one thing led to another, and I was being referred uh, by patients and clinicians to work with families. And so I slowly built a telehealth business. um, And we weren't even calling it telehealth in those days, right? It was like, hey, let's do a Skype call, right? And so, so, yeah, so um, one of the concerns I have as we're moving, and it's great, you know, we have a lot of advocacy organizations that are actually um, helping uh, clinics and providers really outline their policies for implementing a really nice telehealth um, decision tree. Uh, And so what I would say to that is that, and I've said this a few times in other areas, but I think that it's important that people understand you're not going to be replicating the clinic model into a telehealth model. It's going to look different. And um, there is something called screen fatigue for children. And so sitting in front of the screen is actually going to have to be limited, you know, on how much direct one-to-one teaching time that a child is going to be able to receive. So it is recommended that we break up the sessions into small chunks, right? So let me throw this at you. Um, the, The typical level of an adult for uh, paying attention. So a typical adult can only pay attention for about 15 to 18 minutes. So when you have a child with a disability and we're asking them to sit and listen and, and interact for 30, 45, and an hour, it, it can be quite a lot for a little one, right? And right. so our right. telehealth sessions um, need to bend, and for the the younger they are, the shorter their session time, and so uh, the more complex their needs, the shorter their direct teaching time. So what we do is we try to make it uh, small chunks, so 10 to 15 minutes, um, and then they take a break. They can earn a token and take a break, 
do their favorite thing. And, um, and then we use that uh, next 15 minutes uh, talking to the parents, right, and doing some teaching time with the parents. Um, and then the, the, the child would get back onto the, to the telehealth screen using either a tablet or a laptop or the phone. And, um, and we do another little teaching session, right? So um, I like to toggle it that way, um, alternate between teacher time and child time. So it goes back and forth. And again, that's how you blend in that teaching model of teacher-led instruction and then child-led. And so I've also conducted telehealth sessions where I just observed, where, you know, they set the tablet on, the, on a shelf up high so I can see the whole room. And I just kind of observe the child playing with their peers, uh, their siblings. Um, and then I provide feedback at the end of the session. So I, I have found it to be very useful for short um, training sessions, but more useful for observations and parent training. So, yeah, yeah. That's great. That's such great advice. I mean, you know, it's it's going to be really really hard, if not impossible, to do a 30-hour-a-week program, and I don't think that should be anybody's expectation. Mm -hmm. If you start off with that as your expectation, you're going to be uh, frustrated, and everyone's going to have a hard time. And so I I love Mm -hmm. that that message of adjust the expectations and and pivot. Focus on other focus on other tasks for a little bit. Um, You know, now's Mm -hmm. certainly a good time to work on. Um, you know, appropriate mealtime behavior, right? You can be mm-hmm. on a tablet and one at the table and everyone can be sitting and eating and you can be observing and taking data and coaching parents and then they can mm-hmm. practice that at, you know, you can, pra- you can be there for lunch and they can practice at dinner or breakfast or whatever it may be. So I think that's yeah. a great message of just that, that flexibility, right? Yeah, you know, and if, at first people like parents will, are like, this is so weird having someone on the, on the screen watching us. Said, you think this is weird. What if I was sitting on your couch? Yeah. What if I was at your house? <laughs> that, that's weird too. Right. But you get used to it. It's all about, you know, habituating. Right. And then, and getting used to, oh, okay. So this is the new, so I usually turn my screen off. Right. And uh, I have the audio on and every now and then I usually don't talk during an observation session unless something wild is happening. Like, Hey, I, I think they went out the back door, you know, or something, right, right. but I usually just observe and make sure that um, I give good pointers and, and actually just a lot of positive feedback to families. I actually see them doing more things very well that they don't even know they're doing right. You know, and I'm right. like, Hey, I want you to know you're doing great. You know, keep going with that. And, um, yeah, I like to be encouraging, you know, and, and then maybe add a couple tips at the end of the session and say, hey, why don't we work on um, more tokens next session? Or, you know, let's work on the pre-MAC principle the next session, you know? Um, so that kind of thing. <laughs> but it's I like fun. that, yeah. I, I do enjoy it. I do enjoy the, the telehealth. I'm, I'm, I'm working at a company now um, called Siskin Children's Institute, and we have been doing the hybrid model for a while. They actually started using it last fall, so they were ready, you know, for the transition when it happened in March, you know, to, to do home-based services through telehealth. And so um, I'm really proud of, of companies like Siskin that are embracing this hybrid model. And I don't think it's going to go away now. You know, there's plenty of research. Uh, I don't know right. if you're, you are familiar with uh, David Wacker's lab or Dorothea Lehrman, but their telehealth research has been going on for about 20 years. And um, they actually have compared telehealth um, programs um, to in-home therapy and clinic. And what they've been able to see is that the reduction of problem behaviors actually is higher through telehealth programs. 
Yes. Really? And the number of weekly vi- that's right, the number of weekly visits is less. Uh, than home-based programs. And so you've got a higher rate of success with lower cost. Uh, that's just a no-brainer. What, what, was the, what, was the, what was the difference? Oh, well, we could go on and on about that. <laughs> but it was, it was definitely the parent coaching piece, right? So when you think about in, in-home therapy, we have a lot of people who um, – uh, take a lot of pride, right, in being able to teach children, right, and, that, and that's their skill, right? I, I am a therapist. I know how to go into this home and teach this child these new skills, but they, they sometimes forget they, that part of their sessions actually need to be parent training so that when they leave, the parent can continue without them in a naturalistic way. And so that's what the piece was missing. The piece missing was uh, a reliance on parent coaching, uh, in the home uh, sessions had kind of decreased. Now it was there, just wasn't as high as telehealth. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely gets highlighted as you're doing telehealth, right? The 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 telehealth or or tele ABA sessions are it, it highlights the need for parent because if I'm on a tablet and the client I'm working with walks out of the room, I can't go and help bring them back. I'm I'm stuck on the <laughs> I'm I'm stuck right. on the on the tablet, and so there's a lot of a lot of reliance on parents or or families or caregivers or whomever is there in the home. That's right, and it does it does force the clinician into this this parent coaching role, and and we would call this um, maintenance and generalization anyway. But I think that we just were focused so much on uh, teaching skill acquisition to children, and oh look, I know how to do behavior reduction. Let me show you that we forgot to step back and let the parent try it, right, with some guidance, you know. And so, yeah, it's kind of forcing clinicians now to go, okay, I'm going to have to talk to the parent too. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Definitely. Well, Tina, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. Um, Where where can people find you? I know you're, you're in a few places. Where can they find you on the Internet, and where can they find more about you and the work that you're doing? Okay, thank you for asking. Uh, I am on Facebook, Clinician with a Mission, and I'm on LinkedIn, Tina Patterson, Clinician with a Mission. Um, I'm also now uh, the lead behavior analyst. I'm setting up ADA services for Siskin Children's Institute in Nashville, Tennessee, and that would be siskin.org. So those are the places they can find me. Wonderful, and I'm, I'm sure we can put a link to all that in the in the show notes as well. Um, Tina, thank you so much again. Always always great to talk to you and, and to hear all the things you're working on. Thank you for your insight today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Tina. The thing that stood out to me this week was we really had a conversation around all that goes into a clinical programming, everything from mental health to behavioral health, um, the different types of programs, the flexibility in programming. If you're doing a larger program, if you're doing a smaller program, if you're using telehealth practices right now, like so many of you are, um, I really found value in seeing all that goes into that and all the different ways that we can be working to support individuals and their families. Um, as always, you can you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Therapies. And if you have a show suggestion or feedback or you'd like to be a guest on this show, send us an email at allautismtalk at learnbehavioral.com and feel free to subscribe and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. 
hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.